Hello and welcome to the Minimalist Moms Podcast. I'm Diane and I'm a mother of three living in Columbus, Ohio. I'm trying to make room in my life for what matters by getting rid of the clutter and living life with purpose. I hope you'll join me on the journey to think more and do with less. Did you know that babies less than a day old can parse out different vowel sounds? Or that language learning starts early while a baby is in utero by about 35 weeks gestation and the formation of synapses involved in language learning peaks during the first six months after birth? Me neither, until I read Maya Smart's Reading for Our Lives, a literary action plan from birth to six. Maya is here today to discuss key strategies that parents should employ early and often, conventional reading tools and instruction that focuses on teachers and the school years, essential lessons parents can and should give their children, and so much more. And I wanted to remind you that for those who are new around here, I do release bonus content, bonus episodes with unique topics that may not interest my wider audience. So if this topic doesn't fit what you're looking for, join me back here next Tuesday for a conversation about the importance of outdoor play sans parents that you do not want to miss. And lastly, before we get to the conversation, if you have yet to leave a rating and review on iTunes, that is so incredibly helpful for others to find the Minimalist Moms podcast. I so enjoy reading through the comments that you all have, typically more so when they're positive. So if you have something positive to say about the Minimalist Moms podcast, I'd love to hear it. I'd love to know your favorite episode, what you'd love to hear more of, all of the things. Head over to iTunes and leave that rating and review. All right, so since this is a bonus episode, I typically do the minimalist moment of the week and or resource. I'm not gonna do that with bonus episodes, so let's just jump into this conversation with Maya. Maya, thanks so much for joining me today on the Minimalist Moms podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you. Why don't you go ahead, introduce yourself, and then I ask all of my guests if they consider themselves to be minimalist. A lot of people are like, I'm not quite a minimalist. I live more intentionally, so I'm curious to hear what you have to say. I am Maya Payne-Smart, the author of Reading for Our Lives, a Literacy Action Plan from Birth to Six. My background is in journalism, not education. So I kind of approach the project totally from the perspective of a curious parent (laughs) and then just use some of those interviewing skills and document-based research skills to dig into the interest of reading. It's interesting, the question of whether I'm a minimalist or not. I think that I am. My husband says that I am not. (laughs) So I think um, I'm a minimalist in the sense that I don't have a lot of collections and things with one major exception, books. I have books just absolutely all over the place. So if I could be minimalist except for books, (laughs) I think that would be the best way to characterize me. I had an episode, I mean, goodness, this was years ago, but it was minimalist confessions, areas that I struggle to minimize and books on my list. It is something that my husband and I both are English majors. We both love to read. And so we have books in far too many places throughout our home. So I can relate to that as well. (laughs) I think with books, it's not even so much reading them. It'd be interesting if I could go through and do an inventory and note how many I've actually read from cover to cover, but there's something about just having them. I feel like they're a kind of comfort object and they also sort of express my personality and things I'm interested in. So I like to have little stacks of books in certain places. Yeah, no, I can definitely relate to that. So, okay, let's jump into the conversation today about 
early literacy, and I'm just skimming through your chapters right now to give listeners an idea of some of the things that you talk about. So beyond bedtime stories, the truth about getting kids ready to read, the long run, how to nurture reading at each age and stage. Uh, Yes, you can. Five touchstones for parents who dare to teach. So we're really trying to develop these conversations at such a young age, maybe even before we think so. And I'm wondering, first and foremost, how do we start to nurture that at a young age? Absolutely. So from day one, I think it's really important for parents to have literacy in mind. I know when I brought my daughter home, I just have one child, but when I brought her home, I was really focused on keeping her fed and safe. So I was all about the car seat instructions, just getting from home from the hospital and breastfeeding and all of those things. But I think part of what I try to emphasize in the book is that reading is really important and critical for life success and thriving as well. And that the things that we do in the early years really do have a disproportionate impact on their whole literacy trajectory. So if we start thinking about reading specifically when they're in kindergarten or just approaching school, we've missed all these wonderful opportunities to nurture the brain connections and brain structure that fosters later reading. So absolutely from day one. And I think the key things with your your newborns and your infants are active attention. So just responding to the holding the baby, making eye contact, trying to get a sense of what they're interested in, responding to the sounds that they make. So really all of those bonding, connection, nurturing things that you're doing anyway are important for later reading. And I think even with the little ones, you can start reading books. They won't understand all of it. Their eyes won't even be able to focus on the page initially, but one day they will. (laughs) And that to also keep in mind that all the things babies do with books, like chewing books and kind of batting at books and (laughs) throwing them around once they get that coordination, all of that is important and literacy related too. Because one day they're going to learn to turn the pages and they're going to learn to focus on the text, but it has to start somewhere. So it might as well start from day one. You say our current approach to literacy offers too little too late. There's a couple of things I want to ask you, and I'm not sure which path I want to take to to start, but I want to know what prompted you to write this book. Why did you feel like there was a need to write this book? I'm assuming that you saw a need there, and that's probably what prompted you to start researching this, you said, as a journalist. So uh, I'll let you go ahead and answer that question. So when I was, when I first had my daughter, I am a total book lover. I'm named after a writer. I'm named after Maya Angelou, named a daughter after Zora Neale Hurston. And so just love books, grew up with books all around and sort of assumed that my child would be a natural book lover and literature lover like me. And I started reading articles when she was little about um, disparities and reading outcomes between Black children, white children, and lower income children, and more advantaged children, and across all these different kinds of dividing lines. And so I just got curious. She was an infant, so I wasn't worried about her reading prospects specifically, but I was really interested in, um, well, who was assessing the reading? What standards were they using? If kids were thought to be behind when they arrived at kindergarten, clearly something needed to happen before kindergarten (laughs) to put them on a track to be strong readers. So it just was a matter of kind of digging into it and um, asking more and more questions about what parents need to know. And what I realized is that the advice parents are often given is just so general. It's, you know, read to your child every night, take them to the library, have lots of books around, but we aren't told what kind of books, what to do with the book, (laughs) other than giving kind of dramatic readings of the stories, which is important and fun, but what you're doing with a book with a six-month-old is different 
different than what you can do with a book with a three-year-old. And so my book tries to get into some of those details. Yeah, for sure. And I don't know why I felt like my daughter, we started with phonics cards with her really young. And I think it's just because we were looking, I don't want to say we were looking for things to do with her, but we're just like, oh, we have all this time that we can focus on just you. And she picked it up fast. All that to say with my second, he's interested in learning how to read, but I feel incredibly overwhelmed by it. And it is curious how even in my own household structure that I'm finding once you start adding children that it gets I can't give him as much of my focus as I was with just my first. You talk about the discrepancies depending on household. And I'm I'm just imagining if someone is not even around, like, how are we going to encourage them in these households? Yeah, I don't know if I'm making sense. There are kind of two, um, two threads of it, I think. One is that parents don't know the easy, everyday things they can do to build pre-literacy skills literacy skills and just in your daily life with young kids, it's busy, it's hectic. As you mentioned, when you go from one to two, that's like a major leap, two to three, <laughs> even more. So there's just less time. There's less, there are even studies documenting that second children are spoken to less <laughs> often. So um, just there's more, more people to be in conversation with. So they make sure. it fewer interactions and conversational turns overall. So there's kind of, um, we have to make it easy for parents to do the things that they need to do when you're driving, when you're grocery shopping, when you're taking baths, when you're doing all of those things. And then there are also parents that even when they know all the things to do, they don't have the capacity or support to do it because maybe they're working two jobs or their schedule doesn't coincide with when their child is awake or all these kind of bigger societal issues. So I also talk about this book, Reading for Our Lives, is focused on what parents can do easily and affordably in everyday life. And then another piece of it that I think is well addressed in another book called Parent Nation is what as a society we can do to better support families with younger children so that parents, every parent has the ability to have those kind of brain building conversations and have books in the home and all those things. For many of us, stress is just a regular feature of daily life. For me, it's navigating the various ages and seasons of three kids while juggling all the other roles I play in my day-to-day. When stress becomes more intense, it can actually trigger physical reactions like dramatically increased hair shedding and thinning. And what's wild is that people usually lose about 50% of their total hair before they even notice an increase in shedding. Now there's a way to stop stress-related hair loss in its tracks and spark new, stronger growth. Pros specializes in custom hair care, and now they also make custom hair supplements that help reduce excess shedding and spark fuller, thicker hair growth with just two capsules a day. I've worn my hair long for the past several years, and with the length, I have to be sure to keep it well-conditioned and healthy, or else it just becomes far too dry and brittle in appearance. Hair care is something I prioritized in my 30s, and I want to make sure I'm treating it the best that I can. Through an online consultation, Pros customizes your supplements to address all the factors that could be triggering your hair issues like age, hormonal changes, stress levels, diet, and more. Pros supplements use only natural, clean, safe ingredients, not drugs or hormone disruptors. All formulas are toxologist approved, gluten-free, and vegan. Try your own custom hair supplements and you'll get 15% off. Get yours at pros.com minimalist. That's P-R-O-S-E.com minimalist for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off of custom hair supplements. 
you say you have essential lessons that parents can give their kids. So what are some suggestions that you have they can easily implement today? So I'll start with just the the conversations. And I like to give parents the acronym TALK, T-A-L-K, just to remind them of what elements are super important in the conversation. First of all, talk to your child as much as you can and feel really good about conversation as instruction. So the T is for take turns. So I remember being told when my daughter was little, oh, just talk to her all day. When you're in the stroller, just narrate what you're doing. You know, I'm folding clothes and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. But what I discovered in the course of this research was that it's not just about the number of adult words. It's about the child responding to that word, those words. So it's more of a duet. So emphasize taking turns, even before they're saying actual words, just count their coups and babbles as interactions and respond and oh, blah, blah, blah. So the A is don't say blah, 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 say (laughs) actual words. Uh, The A is for asking questions. And that is something that's huge in helping people to take the turns. Because when you ask the child, oh, what are you looking at? Or what's that over there? Is that a bluebird? Whatever those questions are, you're automatically going to pause so that they can answer in whatever way they can. And sometimes it's just pointing, sometimes it's just a noise. And as they get older, there'll be actual words and it really will be a rich dialogue and exchange. So asking questions is super important. And then the L is labeling and pointing. And so with the little ones, I think parents forget that you are providing your child with so much vocabulary and all the words that you say to them, the things that you point to and label, you know, that's a table, that's a chair, all those sorts of things. You're giving them words that they'll later use in conversation. And you're also giving them words that they'll recognize in print and know what they mean. So part of reading is just matching the letters and sounds to kind of decode and sound out words. But the other part is understanding what the words mean. So the more words you give them through conversation is super important. And then the K is simple, just keep the conversation going. So whenever you do have, you've asked that question, they've given an answer, try to find a way to extend whatever it is you're talking about, expand upon it so that they just get more words, more exchanges, more responsiveness from you as the parent. Oh, that's all great advice. What do you want readers to take away from this book? I mean, what would you say is your main reason that you wanted to write this? I know that you started researching it once you had your daughter, but why do you want this to have an impact? I want parents to really understand that they're capable of giving their child everything the child needs to have a strong start in life. And I want parents to have a a really full sense of all the ways that they can have an impact So I talk in the book about um, six different levers that parents have for impacting reading success and conversation, which we've talked about, is really important. Reading books is important because you introduce vocabulary and ideas that you wouldn't come across in your everyday life. But I also want parents to feel empowered as teachers. You can totally teach your child letter shapes. You can teach them letter names. You can teach them letter sounds. And just by reading that chapter in the book, you'll pick up a few pointers that will make it easy for you to teach with just a cereal box or just a piece of paper and a pen. So I want people to feel really confident, parents to feel really confident as early literacy teachers using things they already have and not feeling like you have to get some app or some elaborate curriculum. And then I want people to feel, parents to feel like they're part of a community that's committed to supporting their child in reading. So I want them to think of librarians and pediatricians and teachers and all these other people that you encounter in life as partners in raising your reader. You don't have to do it alone. So one example I give is many parents 
when they're in the U.S., but English is their second language, they don't feel confident necessarily teaching some of these things because they're more confident in their primary language. So I talk about the value of giving the language they're comfortable in to their child and how they might use other people in their community to ensure that their child gets the letter sound knowledge or other things that they need for reading in English. Um, so that's what I mean by connecting. I talk about budgeting as another thing that parents can do and don't think of. Some parents may need to pay a tutor to ensure that their child gets some of these skills, or they may need to research programs where they can get a tutor for free through a school or other outlet. I talk about experiences being really important. So maybe doing the museum instead of the amusement park or whatever the case may be to, again, give your child those words and experiences and concepts that'll help them down the road. And then finally, I talk about parents as advocates. So how you can lobby the school board or set up a meeting with administrators or do certain things in your community yourself to ensure that your child, but also other children have the things that they need to become strong leaders. Absolutely. Yeah. I was wondering too, as you said, if we're looking to people of various income levels, again, if their parents aren't as interactive because they simply can't be because they have to work several jobs or whatnot, how can we help those families? And it's, you gave us some practical advice on how we can, we can just take what you've been saying and engage with those children, whether it's a volunteering in a classroom or if it's a child's friend. I think we can come along and support other families in that way. Do you have any other tips outside of that and how we can be helpful? I think sometimes it's just sharing what you know about certain things, like even letting people know if you've had a good experience with a certain teacher or in a certain preschool program or something like that, letting other people know about that experience and what made it good. So I think oftentimes schools definitely play a critical role in preschools if a child is in a formal child care, child education setting, it's great if they're in one where the teachers are talking and having those <laughs> dynamic verbal exchanges with them. So I think parents are great sources of just tips like that. Like, oh, when you go visit this place and that place, listen to see how they're interacting with the kids. Don't just look at the classroom decor or <laughs> what the brochure says they're teaching, but see how much conversation is taking place with the toddlers and infants because it's so important. Yeah, absolutely. I'm also thinking about, I mean, even as a college student, when I realized why professors have office hours, I would see that professors would have office hours. And I thought, oh, I don't need to go to that. But when I started attending office hours, I grew so much. And it's like, oh, of course, this is why they have office hours. I just was too prideful at that point in my life to go when I originally started college. But I'm thinking in regards to someone making themselves available I think that even preschool teachers, if you, they are available to you. So if you're sending your child to school, your teacher is there. And again, they might have 30 students in a classroom when you start getting into elementary school, 20 to 30 students. But if you're putting it out there, I guess I would say, don't be afraid to put it out there that you want to see your child grow in these ways, or, Hey, my child is showing a tendency that they love to read. So maybe spend more time with them on that. And again, I know they can't prioritize every single student in that and every single student. But if you have put it out there, I absolutely think that they would. Absolutely. I think that what you're saying about having a dialogue with the teacher is so important. And I can give you an example from my own experience. I had my daughter for a while in a preschool that I kind of heard rumblings that it didn't have a great reputation for 
preparing kids to read. Okay. And I heard that information. And even though I was researching this and knew all about different disparities and things, I was like, oh, well, you know, my child is different. Like maybe she doesn't need that kind of support. And the school was wonderful in some other respects in terms of lots of outside time and, um, you know, imaginative play and all these things um, that I loved about the school. But in talking to other parents, you could see everyone's different reactions to that. So some people are like, the school isn't good at this. So I personally am going to do A, B, and C. Or the school isn't good at this, and I'm going to just hire a tutor to teach it. And then later I heard of a parent who said, the school isn't good at this. I'm going to have that teacher like get better at it and actually make sure that my child... <laughs> Um, that my child learns to read and also that they have that skill set for supporting other kids. So there are all these kind of different ways you can engage, but I think it's about curiosity to figure out what even is happening in the room. It's about um, intention and getting kind of a result for yourself, but then thinking more broadly about how you can get a result for other people. So now that that, that parent put pressure on that teacher to emphasize literacy a bit more in that classroom, other kids will benefit without their parents even knowing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that was my main point in that the teachers are available to you and more than likely they're happy to help out and happy to come alongside your child if you're putting it out there. I think we're just hesitant to do that because we don't think that we should step on anyone's toes or whatnot or we're crossing boundaries that we shouldn't. But I think that I think it's encouraging. Like, I don't know. I I feel like it's a good way to help a teacher if they are unaware of that. So I don't know. And sometimes teachers, we can't assume that teachers have been well-trained in these areas. There are teachers who sometimes will say they have a reading specialty or a literacy specialty in their training, but you have to kind of dig into it a little bit to find out, well, what does that actually mean and what have been the reading results of kids in your class? And then I think the question is not kind of to beat up on that teacher for not being better, (laughs) but it's about support. And maybe it's about, you know, getting some professional development in the school or connecting them with online resources or all of these things. Absolutely. Well, do you have any other words that you, final words that you want to leave with the listeners? I think I would, um, I would encourage everyone to keep a journal about these things. So keep a journal overall about things that you're observing with your child, but make a few notes in there about what you're seeing in terms of reading and um, even language. So writing down like what were those first words and it just creates kind of a, a fun artifact. It doesn't have to be some elaborate scrapbook. It can be a note note in your phone. It can be <laughs> something like in a paper journal that you keep on your nightstand. But I think it's really cool to have kind of that record of what was going on in your child's journey when. Mm-hmm. And then if you ever encounter problems and you think your child may have a delay or a challenge in some area, you'll also have information to share with a pediatrician or a specialist. You know, I noticed that um, you know, my older child did this as a myth at this point, but my younger child seems to be behind. And they may say, no, they're, you know, just walking their own path, no big deal. Or they may say, let's dig into that a little more and do some assessments and testing. So that's my my big um, parting bit of advice for parents is just to, to pay attention to what you're observing and write down your intuitions and observations. Yeah. And you have journaling prompts throughout your book, which I also really like as we kind of think through some of these things and how to get better and how to encourage our own kids. So I really appreciate that as well. I'm always into the journaling prompts when I'm reading a book. (laughs) (laughs) It definitely helps since your listeners are very focused on simplicity and intentionality. I think journaling is an incredible tool to remind you of what you 
said you were trying to do (laughs) or accomplish. Well, too, you can also go back to your journals. It's been convicting to me to look back two years ago. Okay. What have I accomplished that I said that I wanted to, what am I still struggling with? How can I focus more on these things that I haven't overcome? How can I celebrate the successes that I've had in in areas? So I think it is a fun way to, I don't know, for personal growth. I, I think it's important. Maybe not everyone is into that as certain personalities, but I do think it's helpful. Yes. And to your point, different people would journal differently. I, for a long time, would have the paper journal and I'd write these deep, long things. And then I would be tempted to tear the pages out later and (laughs) revisit them. And I didn't like having that format. So now I'm more likely just to do like a digital note. Like I'll keep different files that I think of as a form of journaling. So one is, I have one that's like 2022 wins where I just document each month, like things that I'm proud of. (laughs) And so then on days when things are like fatiguing or stressful or frustrating, I can just look back at that list and, and just remind myself of what I have accomplished. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Maya, where can people find you grab a copy of your book if they're interested in doing so? Reading for our lives can be found in any major retailer. If you're looking for specific links to different um, retailers who sell the book, you can go to mayasmart.com slash book. (laughs) and you'll see links to Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all the the different places. And on my website, mayasmart.com, each week I publish free family resources. So there are book lists on different topics and seasons and themes. There are also recommendations for easy activities to do with kids in this age range. And all of that can be found at mayasmart.com slash resources and Maya's M-A-Y-A. Well, Maya, thank you so much again for joining me. I think your book is really wonderful. And I think a lot of teachers are going to start using this book. So I think it's a good one here. And I appreciate you sharing it with us today. Thanks so much for your time. It was so nice to meet you. What did you think of the episode? I invite you to keep the conversation going at minimalistmomspodcast.com. There you'll find links to the Instagram account, Facebook page, and where you can find me all around the web. Thank you for joining up on this journey. I wish you a lovely week as you think more and do with less.